0: From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison, I'm Adam Wigger.
1: I'm Mia Wagner.
0: And I'm Michael Makowski. In this podcast series, we will speak with UW-Madison faculty members and other experts to hear their thoughts on the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the political and global changes that the situation has warranted. This is 1050 Bascom COVID-19.
2: Today on 1050 Bascom, we are excited to talk to Professor Devon Shah. Professor Shah is the director of the Mass Communication Research Center and scientific director in the Center for Health Enhancement System Studies. Professor Shah's research focuses on communication influence on social judgments, civic and political engagement, and health support and behavior. All these areas engage so much of what we've been talking about and dealing with here in Wisconsin and around the world for the past several months. Thanks for being with us, Professor Shah, and let's dive right into it.
0: Thanks for having me. Yeah. So yesterday, obviously, Wisconsin went to the polls despite the ongoing pandemic and warnings from officials and back and forth between the legislature, the courts, and uh, the administration here in Wisconsin. Uh, What's your take here on what happened and what do you think it might mean going forward for future COVID-19 elections?
3: Um, I mean, I think it's it's pretty clear what we saw both in terms of a session that was uh, gaveled in and out in a matter of moments by the legislature, not willing to consider uh, uh, an effort to, uh, uh, you know, even consider a a delay in the vote. Uh, The fact that uh, Tony Evers, I think, uh, was a bit indecisive and not maybe being as forceful about what authority he had or what the state health directorate had to Uh, uh, stop the election on health grounds. Uh, And then the two decisions by our state Supreme Court and then the U.S. Supreme Court, the first, um, you know, uh, uh, essentially saying, (laughs) no, there is no opportunity to delay. And then the second by the Supreme Court saying, no, extended absentee period. And so I think what you're seeing across all of that is a lot of pure party line behavior that suggests there's a very concerted effort on the political right to, limit voting because they think it's politically advantageous to do so. And I think we see the writing on the walls and I think Democrats uh, and those who are concerned about uh, voting rights uh, being uh, reduced, especially for groups that don't have easy access to the polls uh, should be deeply concerned about what this says about the coming election period.
0: Yeah, do you think that that kind of concerted effort by the GOP kind of came across uh, to voters and people, especially like this gained national attention, you know, CNN picked up the story of uh, Speaker of the Assembly Robin Voss in full personal protective equipment saying like, oh, it's incredibly like you can go out and it's safe to go to the polls. Do you think that that came across to not just Wisconsin voters, but to the national audience?
3: Well, I think it did to both. And I'm, I'm, I don't think we'll know whether there was a political price to pay until uh, uh, you know, I think their calculus was if we make voting harder, and we just did a piece in Monkey Cage about this yesterday, Wisconsin data showing that who takes advantage of absentee voting, it tends to be more leaning Republican, more affluent, more white, who tends to have the longer wait lines and and, and who tends to have the longer time to get to the polls. Uh, it's minority groups, and and even uh, in some cases, affluent, affluent minorities. And so it's, um, it's to me, uh, you know, when Robin Voss is there in full protective equipment, saying it's fine to to vote, and uh, uh, and at the same time, there's an understanding of who's going to have the greatest challenges and potentially put themselves at the greatest risk by going out into public to vote and exercise the Democratic right. Yeah, I think the optics of that were terrible for the GOP. Again, whether there's a true political price to pay, America's memory on political uh, controversies tends to be very short these days. We get whiplash from how frequently they occur, and so. Um, Wisconsin's electorate, I do think, pays attention to some of this, and I think um, Wisconsin's been a bit of a bellwether. That's been our argument. We've done a very large night-related project that's centered on the state of Wisconsin, and you know Kathy's and Kathy Kramer's involved in that, and uh, Lou Friedland, Mike Wagner, a bunch of different faculty. And I think what happens in Wisconsin tends to pretend what what happens in other parts of the country. It's a uh, it's a place and. And I think that coverage, you know, we've seen it when we had Act 10. I think we're seeing that now. Um, we'll see it around the, the Democratic Convention if it takes place virtually or literally in Milwaukee. Um, Wisconsin is going to be a centerpiece. It's going to be something that gets a lot of attention. I think there's reasons for that. I don't know if it will stay within the national consciousness. I, I hope it stays in the consciousness of the citizenry of the state of Wisconsin.
1: So after Sanders um, announced that he's dropping out of the race this morning, um, now we know that Joe Biden will be the presidential nominee. Um, as you mentioned, um, even Biden mentioned that the uh, DNC convention may be virtual. What do you think the implications of a virtual convention would be on the presidential race and coverage of the presidential race?
3: Well, I think it would be, uh, it would be very devastating for the Democratic side. I think um, one of the reasons they chose Milwaukee is because Wisconsin's such a pivotal state. I think they need to uh, avoid the mistakes Hillary Clinton made not visiting Wisconsin or uh, attending to it as much as uh, maybe she should have or could have. Um, I think that's one of the reasons the DNC picked Wisconsin. And so having a a convention here would have been very mobilizing and, I think, uh, uh, important. Uh, I think a virtual convention will not have that same kind of impact And so I think that's unfortunate. And
1: just going off of what you were saying on the flip side, if we were to have the convention in person, what would the moral implications of that be? You know, like putting people at risk and how do you think that would play for Biden and for the DNC as a whole?
3: I mean, I think it's um, I think the Democratic Party, uh, by and large, has taken a more uh, cautious approach. You see Democratic uh, politicians wearing masks more often. Uh, you you see these kinds of, you know, the social distancing mandates being put into place by Democratic governors earlier. Now they also tend to be in more populous states. You know, I think if they were to suddenly not be consistent with that and take the risk of hosting a convention in the midst of an ongoing pandemic, I think that would be even more unfortunate and potentially more of a liability. I don't think it's a, it's kind of a no-win scenario. It's very difficult to know what to do in this kind of circumstance, given the optics on either side are going to be terrible. The momentum issue, um, I think, is certainly going to be reduced by a virtual convention. But there's also, as you said, the, the worry that hosting a convention, as we just had an election, uh, um, could be something that uh, is actually uh, uh, creating opportunities for vectors of the disease. And um, I think it'll be about where we are in August.
1: So we know that you work in media and messaging. Um, We also hear that you worked in advertising before grad school. Um, If you were managing Biden's campaign right now, what would you suggest that he do to cut through all the noise of media coverage, especially Trump's daily press briefings that uh, tend to garner a lot of attention?
3: I think he needs to be offering a a daily address uh, or offering a very serious kind of um, uh, focused address that would be uh, something, uh, akin to what the Queen of England did. Um, and I know a lot of people looked at that speech and thought, my goodness, the Queen of England, if there's a moment where you can kind of cut through the clutter, I think that was an example of it. Um, the, I think the challenge is also that, you know, Trump makes great news when Trump does the foibles at the press conference and they cover it, uh, it gets lots of clicks and, uh, journalists are now trained, to write news that generates uh, metrics, and they get rewarded for it. They get rewarded for the number of comments out of their stories. They get rewarded for all of those kind of perverse indicators of what news has become. And I think that's maybe one of the most unfortunate parts of this particular legacy of, you know, I don't think Biden's gonna be able to cut through the noise easily. Um, you know, he's not as interesting a story as the the daily carnivalesque features of a Trump press conference. Um, and I think that makes it particularly hard for him. Um, again, a serious, I think the other thing that's hurting Biden is he makes a lot of off-the-cuff statements that come off as very ham-handed, and then they get repeated and go viral instead. <laughs> and so that's not helping him either. And so I, I think there needs to be a real concerted messaging effort within the Biden campaign. I have not seen it come to fruition, frankly. It's uh, It's been... For a frontrunner campaign, it's been one of the most awkwardly run campaigns I've seen. He's literally gotten to the nomination um, by momentum and name recognition, um, not really through uh, uh, any concerted effort on his own. I think COVID-19 pushed him to the finish line.
2: Great. Sort of switching gears a little bit to talk about social media and partisanship around the COVID-19 virus. It's interesting to see how the partisan divide is landing on this as well and how different politicians are talking about it and politics in general versus the health community. So maybe we can start with social media and misinformation. How big of a problem is misinformation with the COVID-19 virus, and what sorts of ways do you see that that can be managed?
3: We can all offer our, our impressions of how important misinformation is. I'll, I'll give you a maybe a more tangible indicator. Um, the state of Wisconsin came to a, the, the group of us who work in the Center for Health Enhancement System Studies and asked us to develop an app to help support the state response to COVID-19. And that state response involves colonels and majors in the military, it involves uh, 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 people in the Department of Health Services, it involves the state epidemiologists, and it involves university faculty and staff working on trying to address this through creating a system that both addresses misinformation and provides social support. Um, That's how important misinformation in this context is. It's life or death, right? When you can get all those different groups to uh, 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 kind of orient uh, uh, towards uh, uh, that concern, I think it tells you um, that in this particular instance, this is not an ideological question, uh, uh, that misinformation is deadly dangerous. Now, the sad part is it's become ideological. It's become something that we've seen, um, you know, Fox News personalities, we've seen uh, our president share either... Incomplete information, misinformation. I don't want to say disinformation. I don't think they were acts, you know, purposely trying to mislead. Though I think there may be some lawsuits that test that. Uh, um, and and it's you know we're at a point where one part of the political spectrum, especially its its media system, um, felt the need to support the president's claims, and in the process may have misinformed the public and violated a public trust, which is that journalists should tell you what's going on and tell you the truth. Um, and 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 suddenly, you know, there's we've had a lot of debates in the press about what is truth or how we navigate that. Um, suddenly, we have an instance where the misinformation uh, uh, aspects the the they the reveal uh, life and death consequences in in real time. And so, it's it's one of those. It's not like climate change; we have to wait 30 years to see what happens. We're seeing it. We're seeing what a lack of preparation did. We're seeing what not uh, uh, acting quickly did. And And we're seeing um, what that does in terms of long term consequences.
2: So you mentioned um, the different ways misinformation was being spread, how it sometimes infiltrates into more reputable or more national news sources. Do you think the media polarization and the presentation of the reality of the COVID-19 virus has changed over the last couple of weeks? And what sort of evidence do you see it moving in either way?
3: So anecdotally, I'd say it has. I've been kind of attending to, I go to Breitbart every day. I go to Daily Caller every day just to monitor kind of what's on the far right part of the spectrum. I don't go to Conservative Treehouse or the really, really far, far rights, but, uh, uh, you know, I I, I certainly go to Fox News as long, you know, and and certainly go to the more liberal uh, sources as well with Daily Cause and Huff Post. And I think there has been a recognition on the political right that this is a serious illness and that, um that they need to get uh, uh, their audience on board. Though if you look at the comments threads, the skepticism and the uh, uh, doubts about COVID and that it's a a left-wing conspiracy are all there. They're not being moderated, they're not being uh, tamped down. Um, And there's enough skeptical stories and enough doubtful stories about uh, Dr. Fauci or Dr. Bricks or uh, others that uh, I think paint um, a very troubling picture even still. I think they've been taking the, the 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 science more seriously, but they start from a place of such science skepticism. I think it's hard to reconcile. It's a whiplash. I mean, literally three weeks ago they were saying this wasn't an issue, right? And there's now you know lots and lots of viral video floating around with Sean Hannity and and Laura Ingram and person after person on Fox News and Rush Limbaugh and radio personalities essentially uh, uh, saying this is the flu, this is nothing, this is a no big deal, we have it beat. Um, and parroting a lot of what was coming out of the administration. And, uh, and I think what you're seeing is a nexus of influence there where one felt the need to support the other. And I'd like to know where that cycle of influence starts. I don't know if it starts on uh, Fox in the morning or on the Hannity show or in the White House sometimes. It's hard to realize who's making policy. Uh, um, but I think the, the reality is that while there's been some movement, I think there's still enough skepticism that you're still seeing in public opinion polling more doubt on the political right than on the political left about the seriousness of the COVID nineteen threat, and even things like social distancing behaviors seem to be taken more seriously by people on the political left than the political right. So,
0: with that, would you or like with like uh, the spread of misinformation and the kind of machine-like vigor with which the right is doing this? Have we learned anything since 2016, especially considering social media and misinformation regarding the upcoming election?
3: I mean, if we learn anything, I think we've learned as scholars and researchers a great deal. Uh, there's uh, research out of my department by Joe Luquito and Chris Wallace cited in the Mueller report. Um, uh, you know, there was uh, there was work that was. That's uh, tracking, you know, Russian misinformation efforts down to individual accounts that were then picked up by news organizations, quoted as American sources. Um, you know, I think uh, there's a concerted effort by foreign operators, and they may not just be Russian; they could be from many different countries, and they're hard to track. And while well, Twitter and other uh, uh, social media platforms try to identify them and remove them, I think it's an ongoing and nearly impossible task now their goal tends to be generally polarization and, and kind of creating division. Um, whether they're favoring a particular candidate or not is harder to tell. Um, but I think the other form of misinformation we're seeing right now is the form that comes from within our political system, right? That we were just talking about a moment ago. Um, and so I think, have we learned anything? Um, in the scholars, we've seen where it's coming from, but legislatively, there's been very little effort to control Uh, or or safeguard our elections. There's been very little efforts to, uh, um, you know, address, uh, even within most social networking platforms, uh, you know, the ability to purchase uh, paid media. Uh, In many respects, uh, social media platforms have gotten more private in terms of research access because they don't want scholars looking at what's happening behind the the curtain. You know, there's Social Science One. They just did their first big data release uh, of Facebook data. You know, uh, uh, I'm skeptical about what that's gonna reveal, but we'll see.
1: We're gonna shift over into thinking about citizenship and behavior and how um, both individuals and society as a whole is uh, handling social distancing. Uh, While we've seen some people are social distancing to protect themselves and to not get sick, we know that a lot of people are doing it for more of a community um, and citizenship focused angle. Uh, Can you speak to that?
3: Sure. Um, no, I think that's right, that when, um, you know, there's certainly a self-interest component in social distancing, but for many people, especially I think uh, younger people who were told um, they were largely at lower risk. Um, um, and, you know, for those who are thinking really uh, uh, about the implications of being vectors of the disease, their efforts to stay home and socially distance are a form of civic, you know, participation, if you would ask me. I think it's you're trying to benefit your community, you're trying to be responsive to its needs, you're doing it at some sacrifice to yourself, uh, and you're doing it in the hopes of preventing some larger community catastrophe. So, to me, it's, a, it's an example of um, online social capital, if you will, where we've seen the spreading of this information often through networks. Um, I know a lot of young people were influenced by appeals from their friends, more so than probably their parents or from the news media. It's when it started becoming a social norm within networks of friends where it became, look, we really need to make a decision. Are we all socially distancing or not? Um, and I think that's also a, a reflection of that kind of, you know, online community creating norms that that build, uh, uh, you know, certain Behaviors and forms of engagement uh, with community and with society, and that we often think of engagement as something you have to do affirmatively, right? Um, but you know, sometimes engagements uh, it can be. When you think about protest behaviors, things like foot dragging, right, like slowing things down, not participating. Uh, this is an example of one where not doing something is actually incredibly participatory.
1: Your, your response makes me think about yesterday how many Wisconsinites had to choose between their civic duty to vote if they didn't receive their absentee ballot or weren't able to get it in on time, or and their kind of civic community duty to stay home. Um, not a great situation to be in.
3: No, I mean, I think absolutely impossible. And I think one of those where, on the one hand, if you're being asked to do your civic duty and stay home, and then, on the other hand, your civic duty is to vote. And suddenly, we're caught in a bind between which one of our civic duties should we follow, right? Uh, and I think a lot of people were horrified by that choice. And I think they felt by going out in public and expressing themselves, they were also essentially putting themselves, uh, you know, and others at risk. And so, what a horrible choice! I mean, I think it, it, it's it's again elections in and a. In a post COVID 19 world, uh, I hope we can arrive at a way to not disenfranchise so many voters. When you go from 180 polling places to five um, in Milwaukee, um, you know, and have, you know, I think five times as many of that in Madison, uh, what does that say? You know, we had drive through voting in Madison. Um, You know, it's the difference there from a socioeconomic standpoint is just appalling to me.
1: And the the racial differences and how many um, African-Americans are showing up with cases of COVID-19 and then who were disenfranchised in Milwaukee. I mean, it's awful.
3: And, and you know, again, one of the, the it was a story in The New York Times today about how case rates, uh, you know, the early data suggesting the African-American communities being absolutely devastated by this. You know, they're underinsured. Uh, 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 it's also a, a, a living situation. It's also skepticism about the medical community and medical authority because of their history of experience. And you put that all together with suddenly a disease that's affecting them more and then say, hey, if you want to exercise your democratic right and make sure that you actually have a say in politics, uh, you better show up and, and vote and put yourself even more at risk. Uh, it's just horrifying. To me, it's it's literally a, a one of the saddest moments in Wisconsin politics. And I've lived through some pretty sad moments in Wisconsin politics. Um, you know, we, we're a very polarized state. And I thought this would be a moment where, um, given the divided nature that we have a, a, a Democratic governor and a Republican, uh, a, 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 you know, uh, assembly and, and Senate, that we would try to reach some kind of compromise. It just shows you how truly divided and how much it is about maintaining power. So
2: um, there was an interview in the, in the New Yorker between David Remnick and the uh, Nobel Prize-winning economist Daniel Kahneman this week. And Kahneman sort of made this argument that he didn't really, or didn't make an argument, but rather admitted that he couldn't really grasp what was happening and how to think about the costs and benefit analysis that individuals are making, Um, suggested that it might even be too big to process in a way that has been studied at this point before at this level. Um, Sort of, what do you you think of that? Do you agree with that? And how do you think academia reacts to something to this size of COVID-19?
3: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that this, you know, Tversky and Kahneman and their, you know, their work has been so influential on framing research and on media research long before it became devo- you know, the vogue in uh, behavioral economics, right? Just in the last like decade. Uh, so it's amazing. It started in psych, moved to communication, other fields, and then, you know, economics caught onto it. And, and, and it's, to me, the, I think, you know, Dan economy is 100% correct on that. It's, I don't think we deal well with exponential growth. I think we're terrible at that. I think we're terrible at making cost benefit estimates when we can't understand things like exponential growth and change and rates of death. I don't think, I, I don't think we understand things like rates of hospitalization. We don't have good background information, let alone what the cost is here. I think the cost is incalculable, right? When you talk about, the economic cost, but then the mental health cost. Uh, uh, What is this going to do to families? What is this going to do to educational systems? How many kids are going to get left behind um, that aren't going to be able to make up this while other kids essentially have parents who are able to dedicate the attention and energy? And so the gaps increase, not decrease. Um, What's going to happen to communities that are more versus less resilient what are gonna to happen to communities that are devastated by this? What's gonna to happen to Detroit or, or New Orleans or, or New York for that matter, right? Um, and and I, I, you know, to me, um, it's very hard for us to make any kinds of estimates about that and I think in some respects, that same set of questions and challenges have paralyzed our government. You know, uh, uh, they're humans too, right? They're dealing with incomplete information and trying to operate and make decisions in real time And it's it's I think it's nearly impossible to understand, um, you know, how one thing is going to affect another and the kind of negative externalities that one produces while you're trying to hopefully limit others. And uh, I think it's. We're not geared for this. We're not built for this. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. The paper I keep going back to is uh, and the keynote, I think, is the is the Bill Gates one, which is, you know, we will have another pandemic. Be ready for it, right? I mean, it was more, it was what we could have done before than what we can do now. Now it's, it's, we're operating in, in the flow of the event. Yeah. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's very hard to, um, you're, in a, you're in a moving river, right? Right. We're, we're not able to plan our entry. That's right. not where it's, we are anymore. It's constant reaction. And it's constant reaction. It's constant reaction with incomplete information. Yeah. and And bad instrumentation right and, and 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 so it's a set of problems that are that are eclipsing one another to obscure what it is you're trying to see um and and as a result, part of what we need is time right we need more testing we need we need uh, testing for antibodies we need uh, uh, mass and supplies we need ventilators and protective equipment we need all of it at once at the same time we're trying to shut down the economy we're trying to maintain supply lines we're, i mean it's this is logistically it's insanity, right? And so, again, when you when they shut down airport travel for a week after 9-11, it was like, oh, my gosh, what have you done to the, what, what This is It's going to be two months, three months of this? Mm-hmm. Longer globally? I mean, we're officially, I think we're in a recession uh, uh, by most economic estimates. Whether we're heading for a great recession or a depression is the next question. Um, you know, how resilient is the economy in the aftermath of this? Again, we, we have To me, it's hilarious when the stock market goes up or down. It's like someone out there is trying to make that calculation, and then the next day, a whole bunch of people make the exact opposite calculation. Like that to me, the volatility tells me there's no real answer, right? I Yeah, they're as
2: confused as we are.
3: (laughs) In risk, can't figure out what the risk estimate is. I mean, that's what futures markets are. They're risk estimates. Uh, uh, And no one can figure out the risk estimate. So if if the people who have billions of dollars on the line and trillions of dollars on the line can't, don't ask
2: me. <laughs> yeah. Um, when we talk about that too, trying to connect it to our conversation before about misinformation, how do you think like misinformation does in this environment of uncertainty, I'm sure that has a difference in the way that flows and how people react to it. So how do you, how does like the government or the media claim authority on something in a time with so much uncertainty like
3: now? Well, I think it's very hard for this administration to claim authority because they've, I mean, you have a president who's lied, literally, dozens of times a week or every utterance, right? I mean, there's cataloging of that. I think you have a, an administration that's purposely tried to mislead the press, right? So they have a terrible relationship with the press. You had a a, a press secretary who'd never held a press conference and was just replaced. I mean, it, it's it, how do you? How do you and then you have a group that's dismissed scientific authority and and has taken a a decidedly anti-scientific stance. Now, how does that administration lead in this moment? You know, it's it's literally almost impossible to imagine. How do you bring those same people back to the table? And, And thank goodness for people like. Dr. Fauci and Dr. Bricks, and I know that a lot of people are giving them a hard time for working with the investors. Thank God they're willing to, right? I mean, to me, it's, it's we have to have sensible people at the table who are policy and science driven, because so many people, uh, uh, you know, in the White House and, you know, uh, who are deciding policy right now are not. And so, um, you know, that to me is the the most unfortunate feature of this, is we have an administration that's that it, it, it's going to be very hard for them to hold an authoritative position, say things with credibility, especially when you have uh, a president who's quite openly promoting things that the scientific community remains uncertain about. When you know, a president who's trying to actively rewrite his own history about this in real time and using briefings that are supposed to be scientific in nature essentially as campaign events, um, it's absolutely inappropriate. And yet the press will cover it and parrot it because it makes good TV, right? And they won't stay for the part that's the real science because what they really want to report on is Trump's foibles. Um, and and it's it's a it's a deadly combination, right? I mean, I honestly wish they would stop reporting on Trump. One of the best things reporters could do right now is just ignore the president. They won't do it. They're just so trained in terms of the routines of reporting. And if the president speaks the bully pulpit report, It's the exact opposite thing they should be doing right now. They should be going and listening to scientific expertise. They should be adjudicating. They should be guardians of the truth. Instead, they're so stuck in their routines that they just can't break free. And they're so part of the beltway mechanics. Um, And I think that's all part of the recipe of misinformation and lack of scientific authority and an administration who is distrustful and has broken down those trusts uh, that makes this a particularly perfect storm. Yeah, thank you
0: so much for your expertise and your insight today, Professor Shaw. Um, uh, We hope to visit with you again sometime soon. We hope that you and your family and your students are all staying safe. Um, And yeah, thank you again so much for taking the time to speak with Ten Fifty Bascom today.
3: Absolutely, my pleasure. And uh, you know, good luck putting this all together. I hope there weren't too many interruptions and miscues. Uh, Good luck with the editing process. See you guys later. Thanks, Thanks so much
1: mom. for having Thank me. Thank
0: you. Thank you. For more information regarding the podcast, please visit polysci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. For more information on the university's policies and responses to the pandemic, please visit covid19.wisc.edu. You can find more
2: episodes on all streaming platforms. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate, follow, and subscribe.
0: Thanks for listening to 1050 Bascom, COVID-19. Stay safe and take care of each other.